This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hi, Maria. It's so lovely to be talking with you today. Um, this is Katie Milkman, professor at the Wharton School, and I'm speaking today with Maria Konnikova, author of the new book, The Biggest Bluff. So thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. And I... The fandom is mutual. I love your research. As you know, I've written about it multiple times. Um, I think you're doing amazing work. So thank you. It's a, it's an honor to speak with you. Oh, thank you. Um, that's so kind of you to say. Well, I'm such a fan of this book, and I wanted to start by asking if you could tell us a little bit about what motivated you to write it. It's such a fascinating story, and, and I know our listeners will be interested. Absolutely. So the book is... On, on the face of it and on the cover, I mean, there are cards on it about, about poker, but it really isn't. And my motivation had nothing to do with poker because I was never a poker player, wasn't a games player, didn't know anything about poker. It's not that I didn't like it. I just didn't know about it. I didn't care. You know, that's not a world I'd ever entered. But what I was really interested in in writing about was luck and the nature of chance and how we can learn to tell the difference between the things we control and the things we don't control. Um, it's something that I'd been thinking about for a long time. So when I was a grad student with Walter Michelle at Columbia, um, I studied the illusion of control. And we had we thought we were studying self-control and we thought that we were going to be studying how these very smart people are able to make really good decisions in stochastic environments with a lot of uncertainty. Um, and what we found instead was that Actually, maybe kind of the Achilles heel of self-control is when you put someone in an environment where they're not controlling a lot of variables, they don't learn as well. They don't take the negative feedback because they're so used to controlling things. They're so used to being in control and being good in their lives that they fall for the illusion of control. They think that they have more agency than they actually do. And so this was something that was totally fascinating to me. And we didn't find a solution. I mean, it's not like we said, and now this is how you cure the illusion of control. Um, it's, a, it's a really difficult thing to, to actually break through. And a few, years, um, a few years ago, I had kind of a rough patch in my life. Where I got really sick. My grandmother died. My husband lost his job. My mom lost her job. Just a lot of things happening at once. And it really made me stop and Think about luck again in, in a new light and think about, you know what, I've studied the illusion of control. I thought I knew all about it, but it ends up that I probably have some of these illusions myself because this really caught me off guard and I wanted to write about it. I wanted to find a way to explore it. So I, I did what I always do at the beginning of any project a lot, a lot of reading. And someone said, you know, you should be reading about game theory if you're interested in chance because it's a great way, it's a great framework of looking at it. So I picked up the theory of games, which is the foundational text of game theory. One of its authors, John von Neumann, was a poker player. And what I learned was that game theory was actually inspired by poker. And von Neumann said this game is the perfect model for human decision-making because chess is actually a really bad model for that because it's a game of perfect information. All the pieces are there. The board is there. You can make a right decision. Give me enough computing power. I will solve it for you. And obviously chess has been solved. He was right. That actually is the case. But poker is a game of incomplete information. So there are things that I know that you don't know. There's things that you know that I don't know. 
There are things that both of us know. And now we can try breaking our brains by saying, okay, what do you think I know about what you know? <laughs> and what do I think <laughs> you know about what I know? Okay. And we can just go back and forth and kind of do, do those iterations over and over and over. Um, and, and that, like I said, let, let's break our brains now doing that. But that's what makes <laughs> poker so fascinating because it's not just a game of math. And von Neumann was a mathematician. It's not like he had any problems with math, but it's also a game of humans and it's a game of intention. It's a game of deception. It's a game of reading people. It's a game of information. How can I gain the informational advantage here? And that's what fascinated him. He said, if I can solve this, I basically can solve life. And poker, by the way, No Limit Hold'em still hasn't been solved. It's like the golden standard for AI, but it has not been solved. And um, so when I was reading about this, I thought, wow, this is really interesting. I think I should read about this poker thing. And as I started reading about it, I thought, Maybe this is my book. Maybe I start to play this game. Maybe I dive into it and learn it and use that as a laboratory of sorts, kind of a way of exploring all of these issues and trying to figure out, you know, can poker help me discern the limits of my control? Can it teach me what I should be focusing on, what I should be letting go of? So interesting. And by the way, when I read the book and approach the book, it feels a little bit like, the eat, pray, love of science. <laughs> I'll take that as a huge compliment. <laughs> yes, yes, it's meant that way. It's such a wonderful journey. Um, so how did your training as a psychologist change the way you approached becoming a world-class poker player? That is an excellent question, and I do think it helped. Um, well, first of all, it helped in getting my coach, Eric Seidel. I think that was one of the things that was, and he's one of the greatest poker players in the world. I think that's one of the things that intrigued him, that I had the psychology training and not just any psychology training. I'd studied decision-making <laughs> under uncertainty and I'd studied hot emotional conditions. And it was, it was when he saw that, he was like, wow, this is poker. <laughs> you know, you, you have a background <laughs> for this. So, so it helped in that sense, but I think it helped me have the correct vocabulary for conceptualizing the experiences. And so being able to internalize them and be more introspective about it. I think it gave me a metacognitive awareness that a lot of poker players lack. I'm a big believer in having the correct vocabulary to express your thoughts, that it actually can help you realize what's going on, that when you have the right word, you can almost, you can identify emotions that you couldn't otherwise. You can identify what's going on in a way that you couldn't. Um, I quote one of my favorite poets in the book, um, W.H. Auden, and he has this beautiful quote where he said, um, language is the mother, not the handmaiden of thought. And I really believe that. I think that, you know, language actually gives birth to thought. And it's not like you have thoughts and then you try to you try to get words to express them, having the way to express them can help you figure out what's going on. And so in that sense, I think that being a psychologist and having studied all of this and being able to spot it in myself and in other players that I knew what was going on really helped me home in on it and helped me figure out, okay, this is what I need to work on. And Let's be clear. It's not like I magically didn't have any of these biases. There were definitely moments when I was playing and I was like, oh, boy, you know, I am definitely experiencing the gambler's fallacy right now. But I'm just going to bet again because <laughs> because I, I can't lose again, can I? <laughs> and, and you see it happening and I and I could see it happening to myself. And 
Um, so knowing it doesn't magically mean you're not going to experience it and you're going to be able to overcome it, but it's a first step. That's really interesting. You mentioned the gambler's fallacy, and that's a great segue actually to what I wanted to ask you about next, which is sort of what research um, that you cite in your book, what research studies did you find most important uh, to becoming a, a, a poker player and why? Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting, and I think I have a special place um, in my heart for this work. So I, I dedicated the book to Walter, um, who mm-hmm. unfortunately um, died before it came out, but was but was very excited about the project. And he had introduced me to Julian Roeder's work on the locus of control um, very early on in my grad work and said, you know, this is really important. Um, this is a theorist who's often forgotten. A lot of people don't go back to his early papers, but this is such a fundamental concept in everything, and it's really inspired me. Um, and so I have a special place in my heart for those papers, and they really helped because the locus of control and is all about at 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 its core is all about the the question of my book. You know, your internal locus, the things that you control, your external locus, and I actually try to marry that to Walter's work on CAPS, the Cognitive Effective Processing System, and how. You really can't study personality in a vacuum. You, it, everything needs to be conceptualized. You need to figure out what people's if-then patterns of behavior were. And something I realized were, was that those two things can actually go hand in hand because the way that the locus of control interacts with you know, positive versus negative events really tells a lot about the person. So, for instance, there are people who have an internal locus for all good things and an external locus for all bad things. There are people who are the other way around and they actually have an Mm -hmm. external locus for the good things. They say, oh, no, no, that's not me. You know, I just got lucky. And an internal locus for all the bad things. They say, yep, that's my fault. Those people tend to be depressed. There are, you know, there, there's so many ways to play around with those sorts of signatures. And if you can spot those at the poker table, those sorts of dynamics are incredibly useful because you can try to start thinking, okay, is this a, is this a player who sees themselves as in control or sees the game as happening to them? How are they talking? Mm. What's the vocabulary they're using? They're saying, oh man, I'm so unlucky. Or are they saying, yeah, you know, um, I made a, a bad play. You know, how are they actually analyzing their decisions? That really helps you play against them. So that really helped. And I think a lot of the work on self-control really helped because poker gets very emotional and you're work, you're at the table for, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 hour days, these really long stretches of time. And as you know, you know, you get tired and when you're tired, your decision <laughs> quality just deteriorates, right? <laughs> you, you just, uh, Absolutely. you, you know, it's, it's really, really hard to make decisions that are as good and as logical at 1am um, as it was at noon, if you started playing at noon. And so really I think, yeah, so I think knowing that um, helped me just look at some of the research. So for instance, I used some of Ethan Cross's work in the, and I, I cited in the book about distancing and kind of learning how to step away from emotional situations. So I would actually yeah. do some of those exercises at the poker table as I got tired and knew that I was getting a little bit more frayed nerved, <laughs> frayed nerved. There we go. We'll, we'll, we'll make an <laughs> adjective out of that. Um, I would, you know, I would say, okay, you know, I'm a fly on the wall looking down at Maria and, and it helped. It actually worked. Um, so, so I, I definitely used a lot of that. And of course, I mean, I 
it would have been impossible to do my research and it would have been very difficult to conceptualize a lot of this without a Danny Kahneman's research on decision making. I mean, it's just so um, it's so integral to the field and it's so ingrained in my thinking that I almost take it for granted. I'm like, yeah, of course, you know, risk averse, risk seeking, you know. Yeah, yeah, we know all about that. But we didn't. Right. <laughs> he actually he actually made it part of the vocabulary. Um, and so I think having his knowledge was incredibly helpful and the way that he would approach a lot of these things and how, you know, um, a lot of those, a lot of those biases that you see in poker are things that um, Tversky and Kahneman had identified decades earlier. So interesting. Um, You mentioned actually that you dedicated the book to your late dissertation advisor, the great Walter Rochelle, which I noticed as well and was excited to see. Um, And for listeners who aren't familiar with his work, he's best known as the scientist behind the famous marshmallow experiment. And I'm curious if he had been able to read this book, which I'm sure he would have loved to. I'm curious what you think he would have found most interesting about it and why. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, That is not a question I've ever asked. It's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think he would have found it fascinating because he didn't play poker. We talked about this game, um, and we talked about what I was working on and he was really excited about it, but he, he had no knowledge of it, um, in terms of what poker actually entailed. I think he would have been really happy to see that I think that in poker, I have found a way to a solution to a lot of the things that we'd studied. So a way that if you actually teach someone to play poker correctly, you can solve a lot of those biases that we'd found. You can solve the illusion of control a lot of times. You can actually make people more aware of randomness. You can make people better able to actually examine their decision process and to divorce themselves from the outcome, which is so difficult. And these are these are things that we were never able to fix when we were working together. So I think he would have been excited and he probably would have said, okay, you're going back to the lab now. Now we're going to use poker and we're going to see what we can do. Because that was, that was Walter. I mean, to his last day, he was just always excited about research ideas and he was always gunning for the next thing. Um, and it's funny, you know, I got him at the very, very end. I was his final grad student. Um, oh, wow. And um, yeah, so he, and he had thought he, um, he wasn't going to be taking any more students. Um, and then he decided to take me as you know, uh, last one. So there was actually a few gaps. Ethan Cross was his final grad student before me. And Ethan and I didn't actually overlap. I think we had a two year gap, something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. So he had thought that he was done. Um, And then, and he told me that I actually kept him teaching many more years than he would have wanted to, but he wanted to, that's the thing. I don't think it was (laughs) me. Um, And I would, so you know, we'd exchange war stories with some of his old students about him calling at three in the morning, not because anything was wrong, but because he got excited about some analysis that he was reading at the time. <laughs> so I can definitely see that happening, see him reading this book and saying, OK, you know, I know you're not really in academia, but but we're going to do these studies and we're going to use poker and it's going to be awesome. And you know what? For Walter, I would have gone back to the lab and done it. <laughs> What a wonderful um, gift you both gave each other, it sounds like. And uh, I'm sorry he couldn't read the book. Uh, but that's a really, that's lovely, uh, lovely to know that you're his last student and that he stayed around for you. Um, I, want, I want to turn to a really different yeah. topic, but one that I find fascinating as well. 
uh, your gender played a really important role <laughs> yeah. in the stories you share about playing professional poker. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for other women attempting to enter traditionally male forums and succeed based on your experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, for, for people who haven't read the book, um, the field of poker is 97% male. So when Katie says gender imbalance, <laughs> she means gender imbalance. So 3% <laughs> female. You know, I've been in other fields that are predominantly male. You know, media is is male. I was in television. That's male. But I was not prepared for this. I mean, 97% is a lot. Um, and so you can go for days and not see another female. And that was definitely something I had to overcome. And at the beginning, it was something that was really difficult, but I think at the end of the day, it ended up being a big advantage. And I was able to make myself into a much stronger player and person because of poker. And that's so for, for a few different reasons. I think thing one, and this is true, I mean, from all of the psych psychology research, you know this work really well. I've written about this work for The New Yorker. There's a reason that women, you know, aren't as quote unquote good at negotiating and don't, you know, don't get promoted as much. And that's because they are punished for negotiating the same way that men do. It's actually a very smart strategy to be nicer and not be aggressive and to just kind of smile um, because you get punished for it. I remember when I was when I was doing the story for The New Yorker, um, I found this woman who had a job in a philosophy department. She was offered a job at a um, small liberal arts college tenure track, and she had written an email about the offer asking about certain aspects of it, and the job was taken away. They just rescinded the offer. They said, you know what, clearly you're not you're not the right fit. Um, and I just could not have seen that happening to a man ever. <laughs> and no. And um, so so it's very real. And there's a reason why women don't necessarily speak up as often, because that's what happens when you do. And it's not a great it's not a great um, consequence. And so I think my my advice is to both be aware of this, but also to have learned to channel your your inner poker player, your the aggressive one. It took me a very long time to bring her out. And in order to do that, I had to do a few things. First, I had to deal with my hangups. I had to acknowledge, yeah, you know what? I've actually internalized all of these gender stereotypes that society puts forward. I actually don't play as aggressively as I should. I make bad strategy decisions knowing they are bad strategy decisions because I want people to think I'm nice that is bad. I'm losing money. And so I actually had to figure out, okay, people can think you're nice even as you're raising. That's okay. You know, you just need to figure out kind of the, the way to do it. And then the other thing that I really learned, so that was step one was to kind of actually acknowledge that I had these problems because it's so easy. I mean, I, I like to think of myself as a strong female. Um, and so it was not very pleasant to actually acknowledge that, hey, you know what? Actually, you do all these things that are the hallmarks of not very strong women and women who let themselves be bullied and who let themselves be run over. It wasn't a good realization, but it, once I realized it, I started being able to work on it. And then um, I think there are a few other things. Um, I would say... Try to figure out how the people you're playing against in whatever world you're entering, how they view women. And 
if you can figure that out, then you can play against them. You can use their biases against them. You can use the fact that they underestimate you against them. If they think that women are incapable of bluffing, you better bluff your ass off because they will think that, wow, you must really be strong. You must really be confident um, because women wouldn't bluff. You know, she can't, she doesn't have the, the balls to do it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, and so I think that that's a very powerful realization. Um, and then see what, see what the guys who are the aggressive ones who are winning, see what they do and take a page out of their playbook. Realize, you know, they don't always have the best hand. They don't always have great cards, but boy, do they know how to project confidence. Boy, do they, do they know how to make other people think that they, that they've got the goods. So I've actually taken that from them. I don't necessarily like them, but I can take that from them and say, okay, you know, projecting confidence is a huge part of the battle. No one knows what cards you have. And I'm now talking very metaphorically, you know, no one knows what, what you hold in your arsenal. Um, and no one knows what you are and aren't willing to lose. So being able to bluff a little bit that way is, is a very powerful thing. And I think people can see that confidence um, and it will really make you seem more qualified. Maria, that's so interesting. And I just want to end with one last question, which is if your readers left this book and remember just one thing, what would you want it to be? I would want it to be something that we started this conversation with. Focus on the things that you can control. There's so much about life that you can't, and you're never going to be able to control them. And that's okay. Just learn to let go of that and really focus on yourself. What can I control? Well, I can control my decisions. I can control my reactions to people. I can control my mental framings. I can control my interactions. I can control what I do. I can't control other people. I can't control the world. I can't control that. So what do I do to actually make the world as, as good as I possibly can, um, knowing that my, my abilities are, are limited to a certain extent? I think focusing on yourself is so powerful because you will really maximize a lot of the things that can that can make the world a better place. And focusing on the things you can't control, I think we, we do that way too often. And it's it's really important to to realize both that your agency is limited, but that that doesn't mean that you should stop making decisions and stop trying. It's not, I think it can be a hopeful message and not just a hopeless one. I think that's a fantastic message as a, as a scientist who studies these kinds of things. I love it. And I look forward to uh, sharing your book with many people. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Maria. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. It was an absolute pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.